Hello, and welcome to episode 93 of The Modern Manager. I'm your host, Mamie Canfer Stewart. Today's guest is Matt Wallert. Matt is a behavioral scientist working at the intersection of technology and human behavior. A multi exit entrepreneur and product expert, he is passionate about focusing on behavior as the outcome of everything we build. He is author of the book Start at the End How to Build Products That Create Change. And no matter where he is, and I can attest to this, Matt will be in cowboy boots and gesturing wildly. Matt and I talk about behavioral psychology and what happens when you think about management as a service and how to use promoting and inhibiting pressures to guide behavior and create an ideal environment. We get into how to set objectives and run pilots to measure process and outcomes and gather learnings and just a whole lot more. Now, I want to note that there is some explicit language, so maybe don't listen to this one if you have little kids around right now. Lastly. A warm welcome to Mark W., Autumn L., Amy C., and Shannon K. to the Modern Manager community. I look forward to chatting with each of you in the members-only Slack group. And if you haven't yet become a member, maybe now is the right time for you. Go to mamieks.com slash join to learn more about the various membership levels and benefits. Now here's my conversation with Matt. You're listening to The Modern Manager, a podcast dedicated to helping you be a rock star boss with a thriving team. Whether you're looking to upgrade your meetings, cultivate your team, or grow as a leader, this podcast is for you. Now here's your host, Mamie Canfer-Stewart. Matt, it is such a pleasure to have you today. I am really excited. One, just because we're friends and that's awesome. I love having my friends on the show. Um, And two, because I feel like this is going to be a kind of conversation that I just haven't had before because you're just that kind of guy. That's entirely possible. Uh, let's get it on. Here we go. All right. So you wrote a book, Start at the End, which the book, I just have to make a comment about how it's written because it is so you and I just enjoyed reading it because of that, because so much of you comes through. And I highly recommend that everyone who's listening read the book because it's just brilliant and really fun. Yeah, it was, it was really fun to write. I was very lucky. Penguin was like, do it in your own voice. Sure, go for it. And, you know, really put very few editorial restrictions on me in doing that. I got to, to narrate the audiobook, which was super fun. And yeah, it's, it's a really interesting thing to write a book, right? Mm-hmm. You know, you've, you've written, right? Because you can't change it afterwards, right? It is, it is the way it is, right? And so it's funny now reading it. I'm like, I'm not even sure I agree with some of these things. My thinking has evolved. My, my feelings have evolved. But it's, you know, it's a unique milestone. And certainly in my own voice, you know, I have a, a four-year-old son and I have a day job, right? So the book wasn't the, the main thing for me, but it is actually really, really lovely to have something that like, I know if I got hit by a bus tomorrow and died, my son could like read this book when he was 20 and be like, well, I pretty much know who dad was. <laughs> yes. You know, it's very, it, it's, it's kind of funny how we you know, as we drifted away from writing, you know, once upon a time, people kept their letters, you know, if they, you know, they wrote books, they wrote long things. And so, you know, there was a physical manifestation of them, right? You know, if you look at Thomas Jefferson, right, there's pages and pages of writing. We know a lot about Thomas Jefferson in his own voice and other people's voices. And for a long time, we didn't have that. I'm interested in how the advent of the internet has actually started to create that again. And certainly writing a book, I'm like, nope, here's the thing that is very much me and mine and an accurate representation of what I believe in the world. 
Well, I think that's so beautiful because so much of what I write gets edited down to be consumable, right? Like even the book that I wrote is very much my voice, but not to the extent that yours is, right? Like mine has the, you know, the editor layer on top of it. Um, but I, I agree. Like, I think it's really nice to write and get ideas on paper even and just to like have it codified. But you don't have as much of a potty mouth as I do to begin with. So I'm imagining the editor didn't have to add a layer of taking out a bunch of curse words, whereas mine, they were like, you know, it might be pushing the line there, man. All right. Well, this is a good transition point. Your book is about using behavioral psychology on product and service design. And this is a podcast about managing people, not product or service design. So I want to kind of talk about your book, of course, because the concepts are really fascinating and apply it to what managers do. So the first place I want to start is the model that you use around positive and negative influencers, because I think it makes a lot of sense when you're thinking about it from the customer perspective and how do you get the customer to do certain things, but also from how you get your team members to do certain things. How do you get your team members to adopt a new practice or technology or anything else? So can you walk us through that model? Yeah, of course. And, you know, the thing I would say is I actually think management is a service, right? Management is, is, is a product. And I think we want to think of it that way. I think many first-time managers, one of the things they struggle with is that they know that they are supposed to be a manager and that means they're supposed to do certain things, but they're not articulating to themselves why. And the why really matters. You can't decide how to manage if you don't know what behavior you want out the other end, right? And so I do feel like management is very primarily behavioral and and I think very carefully about the the service design of myself as a manager with my team. And so to your point, we talk about promoting pressures and inhibiting pressures, right? So promoting pressures are something that make a behavior more likely. Inhibiting pressures is something that make a behavior less likely. Because we can't reach out and just cause someone to behave a certain way. Right. I have a as we talked about, right? I got a four-year-old. I can't choose what he wears, right? Every morning he has to choose that. But I can influence what he wears, right? And so I could put out clothing in the morning, thereby making it more accessible and more attractive, and therefore more likely that he will wear it, right? And so I can introduce promoting pressures, attractive clothing. I could take it out of his drawers for him, removing inhibiting pressures, making it more likely. He could go get different pants, but that would require him going into his drawers and getting different pants and like putting away the, the pants that I already set out. And so I can manipulate the environment in which he interacts to cause behavior. Management is the same thing, right? I have defined behaviors that I want from my team, and I then create an environment that causes those behaviors to be more likely to occur. I can't guarantee they occur, right? Sometimes I have to fire people, right? Like I can't guarantee things happen, but I can make an environment in which the behavioral outcome I want is maximally likely. And that's my job as a manager. First off, I love the way you're talking about management as a service or a product of itself and thinking about it in that way, because it's not something that I've ever thought of it in that way. And I think about management all the time. So thank you for blowing my mind right now. Secondly, can you give us some examples of the behaviors that you think about for your own team and the, the different levers that you pull, removing obstacles, creating the environment that makes it more likely? Can you just give us an example of yourself? Yeah, sure. hundred percent. So one of the things I want my team to do is I want people to acquire skills that are outside of their zone of specialization, right? So I very much subscribe to the sort of T-shaped people sort of version of management, right? People have a deep expertise and then broad interests. You know, I want to both have them 
grow their, their deep expertise and broaden their interests. So for example, one of the things my team does is every Friday, we have an hour, which we call arms time, where someone is teaching a skill that other people don't know that's broadening them. So that could be everything from you know, idiomatic Spanish to how to present better to basic you know, statistical inference. It can be anything that brings value in an arms way to the group. So we spend an hour doing that. And then we spend an hour on what we call legs time. So everyone who has a deep specialty, all of my you know, quantitative scientists, or my qualitative scientists, or my project managers, go off together and learn something deep in their expertise, right? So, you know, maybe the data scientists go off and do something on multi-level regression and the project managers go off and do something on sort of like new forms of product management, whatever the case may be. And so I can't guarantee that people learn, but I can create an environment in which they are encouraged to broaden and which they are encouraged to make things deeper by creating time and space for that, putting it on our calendar, telling them they have to do it, strong promoting pressure, right? And then also making it easier to do, removing some of those inhibiting pressures, right? Having somebody teach a class, you know, I meet with them to help them get ready to teach an arms class, right? So I can help them structure their content and, you know, work on the pedagogy and how they're going to present and have them present to me and, and do those sorts of things. So I can remove inhibiting pressures and create promoting pressures to actually change uh, those, that particular behavior that is learning and growth. That is so cool. And it makes me want to come and work for your team. <laughs> so I can, I can participate in these learning sessions. Uh, you know, we should open them up to the outside. Probably we should record these. You know, there's nothing, there's no secret sauce in these arms times that we wouldn't be willing to release publicly. We should honestly just record them and release them. Maybe I'll, maybe I'll do that next. <laughs> See, you're teaching me things already. Awesome. All right. Next question along these lines. How did you come up with that model or that structure? Like, was it just a totally intuitive, like, I want people to grow and learn. Let's put time on the calendar. Or was this an iterative process similar to what you've used, you talk about in the book? Well, it's an iterative process and it's also a co-designed process. So I work very deeply with my team together to experiment on things. And then we have sort of, you know, we do, as I describe in the book, you know, this sort of series of, of sort of pilot test and scale. I'll give you a great example. One of the things that I knew from previous management was I wanted people to be able to have a work from home day, but I want everyone to have the same work from home day. Because what happens when, you know, you just say sort of work from home day, everyone has one work from home day a week is like, Matt's gone on Monday, Sarah's gone on Tuesday, John's gone on Wednesday. And then, you know, it's very hard for us to all be together in one place at one time. So on Tuesday, we know Tuesday is work from home day. You need to schedule a doctor's appointment, schedule it on a Tuesday, right? You need to go to the DMV, do it on a Tuesday, right? And so I knew that coming in. And so we did that for the past eight months. And then one of the things people were like, I think we're ready for a second work from home day. And so we're right in the middle of adding Thursday, but we didn't just, well, that sounds like a good idea. We add Thursday. I actually look very closely at, for example, some of our outcome metrics to see what that does. So we're on a one month pilot of adding a Thursday. And I am very closely looking at the data that comes out of my team. So I can understand sort of, are we actually more performant? And also our qualitative data, right? So everyone is, has been asked to do a weekly check-in and say how they think going that second day is, and then we'll talk through it as a, as a whole. So we get that quantitative, qualitative sort of triangulation throughout the thing. It's nice on my team. I, I know what we need to do. I know how our process works. I know what our milestones are. And so I can actually measure progress towards those in a relatively reasonable way. So for one example, one of the things that my team does is when we're piloting an intervention, we might make a number of calls. Well, I can see, do people make more and better calls in the office or at home? And it turns out 
people actually do better calling campaigns when they're at home. I, I, they are more productive. They make more calls per day. And we have a higher conversion rate into whatever it is that we're trying to intervene in one of our members' lives. And so tracking that data and having an idea of not just sort of, well, this sounds like a good idea, let's do it. But no, we're going to try it. We're going to look at it. We're going to measure it. And then we're going to decide whether that becomes something that we make part of our standard practice or not. Can you talk more about how to figure out what those metrics are and how to gather those? I mean, I know I think a lot of the managers that, at least the ones I talk to, don't have that kind of data on their team and they don't have a team of data scientists working for them. So you know, how, how if I'm managing, you know, a marketing team or if I'm running the finance department for a small business and I got, you know, three or four people, what are some of the ways that I start to think about the metrics or the measures that I want to gather so that I can then have something to test against as we go through this iterative process? Well, so I'll sort of say two things to that. In a well-run business, your team should have metrics, period, right? Like you should know what it is your team needs to contribute to the company. So if you're a marketing department, right? You know, customer acquisition is your thing. Like, and you can track customer acquisition. That is a very metricable thing. You can do it qualitatively, you can do it quantitatively. And so ultimately the outcome metrics for your team should be whatever, you know, is your sort of OKR or however you're expressing goals inside of your organization. So I think that's the first thing I would say. But you could also have a second set of what we call process metrics, right? So ideally you have to have outcome metrics. I'm very firm on outcome metrics a well-run company should have outside metrics for your team. And those, your team should know them. They should know how they're tracking against them. Like one of the problems of managers, you know, when people talk about lack of transparency, et cetera, is managers don't do a good job of communicating to their team how the team is being measured, right? They make up their own internal measures. Well, I want you to do this. I want you to do that. But they don't understand like, well, what are the people above me, your skip levels, expecting from our team, right? What is our goal, our shared collective goal? And how do we work towards that? That's a huge mistake, right? Because if you're operating in a high autonomy team, which you should be doing, you want to give as much autonomy as you can. If you don't have a shared collective outcome, then you can't manage towards that outcome. I think that's the first sort of point is the metrics are built in because your team should be understand where you're going, right? And so that's the first macro metric. Then there's process metrics, right? And so those are the, you know, did they make the calls? Were people logged in? How many lines of code sort of? Thing. You could, you know, and the reason those are different is you could write a million lines of code and not actually reach your company level metrics, right? I don't care if you write a million lines of code or one line of code. I want to know that you can reach your company metrics. But from a management perspective, understanding what people are doing can be really helpful. And so I don't think, I think you want to set goals around outcome metrics. I think you want to use process metrics to understand what's actually happening. That actually makes a lot of sense um, and feels really similar to the way that I think about delegation being you can delegate an outcome, right? Which is like, I want you to, you know, secure a new customer for us, or you can, uh, you can delegate a task, which is book this hotel, right? And those are two different things. And just because you book the hotel doesn't mean that when you go on the client meeting, you're going to get the new client, right? So like looking at those two, two different ways to measure success or two different metrics of being, did you accomplish whatever it was that this team is responsible for? And then did you do the tasks that are likely leading to the accomplishment of that thing? Yeah, absolutely. And that has a little bit, you know, that sort of comes into like job level and team level, right? You know, at, at lower levels, you know, people are responsible for tasks. As they grow, they, they are increasingly responsible for outcomes. You know, I try and start people on the outcome track as early as humanly possible. You know, I'm, I'm a bit of an outlier in this. You know, you and I have talked before about the notion of a behavioral statement, right? The idea that you articulate what behavior it is you want. 
And the nice thing about behavioral statements is that you can make them as small as you want, right? And so if you're Uber, right, you can, yeah, your macro, you know, if you're the marketing department at Uber, your, your macro behavior statement is about like acquiring users for Uber all up, right? But, you know, an intern, right, the, the lowest level employee, temporary employee you could have, you know, you can say your job is 22 to 23 year old Latina women in LA, right? Like go get as many of them as, you know, you could parse it down into something that somebody can truly own and then they can sort of make their own thing. So I, I sort of feel like you, you want to measure process and outcome. You want to judge on outcome, but you want to use process to help you understand what's going on so that you can modify it. But nobody should ever be judged for process, right? If they go about getting a client in a way that is different than the way you would have told them to get the client, why does that matter as long as they got the client in an ethical and reasonable way, right? And so I never judge people on process metrics. I just use process metrics to help me understand what's actually happening so that I then can say, when we aren't reaching an outcome, what suggestions can I give, right? Because if, if I don't have process metrics, I can't say, well, here's what you might try doing differently. But I never judge people on them, right? I would never, like your calibration, you don't get demoted because your process metrics are low, right? You get, you get fired because your outcome metrics are low. Yes. All right. I want to shift gears a little bit because you talked about this behavioral statement, which I know what that is. And you kind of alluded to it, but can you walk through the architecture of that statement? Because it's really powerful when I was reading in the book and it, it kind of brought together what some of those outcomes might look like. Yeah, sure. Let me, let me talk through a generalized example and then we can talk about how I sort of use them in management. So at its most raw level, a behavioral statement is when a population has a motivation and some limitations, they will behavior as measured by data. So using Uber as an example, and I always sort of caveat by saying, um, you know, fuck Travis, if you are a if sexism happens at your company and you ignore it, then you are a sexist. Like, you know, fuck, fuck Uber, take Lyft. But Uber did it like really well. Um, you know, they had a behavioral statement I think was very clear and crystallized, right? So when people, literally anyone, which I think is unusual in a startup, right? Most startups concentrate on an audience. Uber was in fact for everyone. I think, you know, if a chicken could dial an Uber, they would drive it across the road. Like, I don't think, you know, Uber doesn't care. Like, they're just like, whatever, get in the car, like, fire on. So when anyone wants to go from point A to point B, there's only one motivation for taking an Uber. And that is, I want to go from point A to point B. So when someone wants to go from point A to point B, and they live in, a, in an urban area, and they have a cell phone, an electronic form of payment, a connectivity, and all these other limitations, they will take an Uber as measured by rides per month, right? And so you have a very concrete behavioral statement, how to measure it's actually built in there, right? And you can use that at a company level to manage where your company is going at a team level to manage where your team is going. And so my team is very conscious of what our behavioral statement is, right? What our team needs to do inside of Clover and to be successful. They also know what they need to do, right? So they all have their own personal behavioral statements about like what their role encompasses and is and needs to do, right? And so you can, I literally manage through behavioral statements so that everybody knows this is what is sort of expected of us and, and expected of each of us individually in our role. So I think you can use behavioral statements to your night, the direction your team is going. You also can help them understand what their individual job is using a behavioral statement. So when the team, for example, wants to understand what our members are doing and they are already collecting the data and it's somewhere in the data warehouse and it's normalized in some reasonable way, 
they will come to me to analyze it as measured by successful. I've used NPS before. How likely would a person be to recommend me to someone else on the team to do an analysis? I've, but I more usually use, you know, sort of successful analyses. So things where the other party feels like this analysis answered their question zero one, right? And we actually could track that. So you can have a, a queue that goes into your data science team, and then you can ask people in the organization, you know, data scientist pushes back a report, closes the ticket. You can then ask the person, hey, do you feel like this report answered your question or not? And then you can judge them based on basically velocity of successfully answered questions. Yeah, this is great. I'm thinking about one of the teams I work with that works with like regulation and regulated products. And there's a lot of getting copy approved and making sure everything that we're saying, you know, they're staying on the packaging and the products that it's all, you know, kosher. And I'm imagining a behavioral statement for that team. That's like when the marketing team or when the product design, I don't know exactly who does package design, but when that, like when those teams are in need of language. I don't know. Like, I feel like you could so easily apply this to an internal team or an external team when you get really specific about the behaviors. A hundred percent. And I think that what it reveals is one of the really important things is knowing where you pick up the ball and where you drop off the ball, right? So meaning one of the reasons you stumbled there is because it was un- it's unclear where the team picks up the ball. Is my job just making sure, like they write the copy and I just make sure it's compliant, right? And so the limitation is, and they have the copy, right? Because that's required of them. That's a limitation. Or is it my job to write, you know, to write the copy and those sorts of things? One of the things a behavioral statement really helps you articulate is what things do they have to have when they come and what will I cause to be true? So if we go back to the Uber example, Uber's not moving people into cities and it's not giving people cell phones or cell phone connectivity or electronic forms of payment, right? Those are all limitations. It says you have to have those things before you come. And that's one of the things that can be really important for your team. It's actually, if you're a, a manager, especially of junior folks who may not feel as comfortable pushing back, it is incredibly important that you put limitations on, on how people are, are allowed to engage with them, right? So if somebody shows up without copy, you say, hey, look, you have to go write your copy. We don't write the copy for you. We just make sure it's compliant. You have to go write your own copy. And so by establishing those limitation parameters, you can actually put a protective zone around your team so that they are able to push back on work because there's a formalized, regularized way of saying like, no, you have to have these things before you come. I'm imagining how my job could be so much easier if I had that kind of statement, right? To say when you, you know, when a team member encounters a challenge, they have thought it through documented options, right? Like they've, they've created some potential solutions and then they're coming to me for problem solving enhancement insight, right? But if they show up and they're like, I have a problem, I can be like, well, you got to go back. You got to like do a little thinking on this before you bring me in. Yeah. And there's a variety of, you know, management techniques, people, you know, in, in software coding, often they use the five minute rule, right? If you come and ask me for help, I'll tell you, you have to go away and think about it for yourself for five minutes and then you can come back again right? There's a number of sort of techniques people have developed to sort of work with that limitation, you know, all of which I think are, are you know, hopefully what you get to is a place where when somebody comes to you, they really have, have thought about it ahead of time, but you do have to lay out what those limitations are. I think one of the key things that, you know, consultants have this problem all the time. I was talking to somebody last night where they were talking about how they want to normalize their consulting practice and, and we were talking through what they were doing. And I was like, well, 
it isn't clear where I'm supposed to engage with you, right? On some clients, they've done these things. Some clients haven't done those things. Like you need to have a clearer menu where like, hey, you have to show up with, with this, right? Before I can help you. And when we get to here, this is where I'm, I stop and you go do it on your own and you don't need training wheels anymore. And I think if you don't articulate that, again, going back to like protecting more junior employees or protecting your team, if you are not clear to the rest of the organization, that's how scope creep happens. That's how people get overburdened. It's very clear at Clover, like, you know, what's, what things the, the behavioral science team will do and is responsible for and where we sort of pick, drop off the ball. Like, hey, we've designed the intervention for you. We've proven that it works. Scaling is really up to you. That's a firm stop, right? And so other teams know that. We have a transition process. And again, once you know what those are, you can build processes around them. And so that implies internally to your team as well. When you come to me as a manager, when you come to our one-on-one, that is your time. You have to show up with these things if you want it to be productive. Regularizing that process, standardizing that process. It's so interesting to me that people have become so afraid of process and so afraid of standardization. I think people think of particularly sort of a Gen Z sort of mindset, you know, people think of standardization as like the man, the machine, right? The, the big corporation has too much standardization and it inhibits freedom. I don't think that at all. I think standardization actually encourages expression and freedom. You know, you need to know selectively where you're going to break it, but process, good open process facilitates autonomy. It doesn't destroy autonomy, it creates it. I would never be able to allow my team members to be as autonomous as they are if we didn't have a strong process that then creates the opportunity for that autonomy. I agree 1000%. And the thing that I find most helpful with process is that it eliminates the whole brain power that has to get put into the process side so that you can actually unleash all of your brain's power and energy and thinking onto whatever that content, that creative, the the real stuff is. And when you don't have process and you're trying to both figure out the process or constantly shifting processes as you do your work, it is just exhausting. And so having that regularized, that standardized process, as you're saying, it opens up opportunities that are would otherwise not be accessible. Yeah, 100%. I mean, in a, in a Psychological terms, we sort of think of it as cognitive resources, right? There's no such thing as time or money. It's just all cognitive resources. How much brain energy are you going to devote to a thing? And by and large, it is hard to make that pie any bigger or smaller, right? The, the pie is the size of the pie. What you can do is change how it is spent. And so what process does is say, you no longer need to devote time to thinking about these things. That frees up time for you to think about those things, right? I am famous for wearing the same thing every day. You know, in tech, I wear the same sort of sort of clothes every day. That frees up time for me to think about other things, right? I shave my head. I don't have to think about my hair. Like there's lots of things that I just don't have to think about anymore so that I can spend the majority of my time thinking about the two or three or five things that I really care the most about. And I think as a manager, your job is to systematically remove the things that are stealing your team's mental energy to allow them to focus on the things that they really want to do and are really good at and can bring value with. Well, I think this is the perfect place to wrap up. So really quickly, as you know, the show is called The Modern Manager. So can you tell us about one of the rock star managers that you had the privilege and pleasure of working with and for? What made this person so awesome? Yeah, I mean, I've, I got very lucky throughout my life of having a lot of great folks who have, have helped guide to my career, but I certainly would call it Stefan Weiss, uh, formerly at Microsoft. 
as you know, he was a really great manager for me, right? And I always think that for me is important, right? Because it's like being a great teacher. The teaching style of somebody isn't going to be perfect for every student. And so it's important that you, you know, you find the manager or the teacher or the whoever who can help you grow in the right way for that point in your life. But Stefan was great. He was really, really good about setting, you know, outcomes, right? You know, I knew very clearly what it was I needed to accomplish. And then I had almost total autonomy in doing it, tons of air cover and support. And, you know, I have a difficult personality. And so he was often the sort of diffuser, right? When people are like, yeah, that guy seems kind of crazy. Like he, he was very good about being like he is, but he's also very productive. And so, you know, congratulations, just let him be productive, right? I think a good manager, you know, my current manager is great, Andrew Toy at, at Clover. I think a good manager helps other people understand how to work with you and provides the right framing for thinking about how to work with you. They help you be your best self, not by changing who you are, but by changing the frame in which people see you. And I think that could be, you know, really, really helpful because you know, I think as, as you know, you, we didn't talk about it today, but, you know, you and I share a shared interest in, you know, gender bias and, and equity and other kinds of things. And I think as has been so convincingly shown in research and other places, the same behavior can be seen in more than one light, right? What's seen as, you know, go-getterism in one, in one context can be seen as aggressive in another context, right? And, and that's colored by race and language and gender and all these other kinds of things. And so a good manager helps the rest of the organization frame your behavior appropriately to understand what it is that you are doing and how you are doing. And I think that Stefan was really great at helping people understand why I approach things the way that I did. So well said. All right. Where can people learn more about you and your book? I mean, I'm a pretty easy guy to find. It's mattwallert.com or mattwallert on Twitter or matt at mattwallert on email or, you know, whatever the right thing is. You know, I, I spend a ton of time mentoring. I try and try and have a very open door policy and spend as much time with people as I can. So if I can be helpful to somebody, you know, please do reach out. The book is mentioned on the website. I'm sure you can get it at Amazon. I think the more important thing is to, is to keep listening to this podcast and podcasts like it and thinking really deeply about your management style. You know, it really just is just about conscious engagement. I think people have this false perception that if you just hang out long enough, you'll magically become a good manager. And maybe that's true in a few cases, but the majority of great managers that I know were very conscious and intentional about thinking how to do it. Um, and so hack on it, just like you hack on anything else and just like you hack on any other part of your job. Awesome. Thank you so much, Matt. It has been super fun. It's super fun to get to visit with you today. And hopefully we get down to sit down in person soon. I'm, I'm looking forward to chatting. As you probably picked up on, Matt is just such a unique thinker and a really interesting person. And he has generously offered to give away five copies of his book, Start at the End, How to Build Products that Create Change. If you become a member before April 14th, you will be in the raffle and eligible to win one of those five copies. To become a member, go to mamieks.com slash join. That's M-A-M-I-E-K-S dot com slash join. As always, all the links are in the show notes and they can be delivered to your inbox if you subscribe to my newsletter, which is at mamieks.com slash podcast. Thanks again for listening. Until next time. Meetings are one of the most critical components of healthy collaboration and teams are at the heart of how we work. Meteor helps you use your time in meetings productively, build healthy relationships with your colleagues, and move work forward. To learn how we do it, visit meteor.com. That's M-E-E-T-E-O-R.com. You've been listening to The Modern Manager. 
you're already becoming a rock star boss of a thriving team. I can tell. To ensure you never miss an episode, subscribe to the show in your favorite podcast player and join the mailing list at mamieks.com slash podcast. That's M-A-M-I-E-K-S dot com slash podcast to get show notes and other special content delivered directly to your inbox. Thank you so much for listening. Until next time.